The passage this morning is from Acts 22:30, and it goes to 23:11. It's on page uh, 932 in the pew Bibles in front of you, or on the screen behind me. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And you are sitting to judge me according to the law. And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, why would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that part of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also, so you must testify also in Rome. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Acts 22:23, and let's pray as we look uh, at God's Word together. Lord, thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you have not left us to figure out who you are, what you expect or command, what you've done. Rather, Lord, you have revealed yourself to us through your word and ultimately through the living word, Jesus Christ. So may we hear your voice as we look into your word this morning. We need your spirit to give us ears to do that, eyes to see you, hearts ready to be transformed by the life-giving message of Christ. So be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you know I'm a pretty big fan of the Marvel superhero movies. Uh, no spoilers. Don't worry. I have seen Endgame. Even though the spoiler ban is lifted, I'm not going to, you know, go into, go all Tolkien on you and turn the movie into a series of sermon illustrations, like how Jesus is the true and better Captain America or something like that. I'm not going to do that. But there's a scene at the beginning of a different Marvel movie, Thor Ragnarok, that reminds me a little bit of the opening of our passage. 
So that film opens with the hero bound in chains, dangling in a dungeon. So the self-proclaimed strongest Avenger, he's now his prisoner. And he then starts monologuing to the audience. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, Thor's in a cage. How did this happen? Well, when we jump into our passage here this morning, right into the middle of the story, you can almost imagine Paul doing something similar. When we last left off, he was, you know, in Miletus, eager to get to Jerusalem, and now all of a sudden he's in Jerusalem, bound in chains, surrounded by guards, ready to be dragged before his accusers. You can almost picture him saying something like, I know what you're thinking. Oh no, Paul's in chains. How did this happen? There's obviously some backstory to the story in front of us this morning. How did Paul end up in chains? Is, is the gospel all of a sudden losing in the book of Acts? Is Paul's mission suddenly brought to a standstill? Is it over? If we're not familiar with what's happened between chapter 20 and chapter 23, our story this morning is not going to make a whole lot of sense. And so I want to start by looking at the backstory, the, what's happened in the previous few chapters, and the accusation that has been leveled against Paul that lands him in chains at the beginning of this passage. So back in chapter 19, when Paul was still in Ephesus, uh, we were told in 1921 that he had resolved in the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem and after that to go to Rome. He has a call to keep preaching the gospel, to move on, to preach the gospel in Jerusalem and then in Rome. And when we looked at chapter 20 last week, he was on his way to Jerusalem when he stopped off in Miletus and, and summoned the elders from the church in Ephesus. And even there in that conversation, we saw how he let them know that the Holy Spirit had testified to him that imprisonment and afflictions await. So he knew this was going to get hard. Later, when he stopped off in Caesarea on his way to Jerusalem, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, Luke tells us, and, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Paul is not entering into Jerusalem unaware of the trouble that awaits. So he arrives in Jerusalem, chapter 21, verse 17. Immediately he visits James and the elders there who rejoice when they hear everything that, that God has been doing through Paul's ministry among the Gentiles, but who then also warn him about the climate in Jerusalem right now, uh, how uh, even many of the Jewish believers are concerned about Paul. They, they remain zealous for the law, and they've heard rumors that Paul teaches that all the Jews who are among the Gentiles should forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. So Paul's loyalty to Israel, to Israel's law, is being questioned, not just among non-believing Jews who, who don't accept Jesus. It's being questioned even among believing Jews. It, it reminds you how difficult it still was for the early church to take on board that God's plan of salvation was for both Jews 
and Gentiles, and that they were united not in the law, but in Christ. And, and so, to quell some of those rumors and, uh, that might compromise Paul's witness among the Jews, the elders in Jerusalem encouraged him to participate in a, in a ritual purification as a sign of his observance to the law. Here's what you need to do just to show them that you're not uh, forsaking these things. And, and Paul does that. So you think, all right, problem solved. Paul can now go about freely and, 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 and speak of Jesus. Well, as he comes to the end of that purification period and he arrives in the temple to offer his gift, everything starts to unravel. Uh, so if you've got your, your finger still in Acts 22 and 23, flip one page back to chapter 21, verses 27 and 29, and look at what those verses say. When the seven days of his purification ritual were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with them in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So this accusation, very public accusation, starts a chain reaction of Jewish riots, Roman interventions, secret plots, public hearings, and strategic appeals that are both going to test Paul and his faith, but are ultimately going to enable him to bear witness to the gospel, not just in Jerusalem, but all the way to Rome. And it's this accusation that kind of sets the ground for the trial, the hearing in our story this morning that starts with Paul in chains. As, as the city erupts and, and people are beating Paul and trying to kill him, the Roman tribune, a military officer, ultimately intervenes, arresting Paul and bringing him to the barracks to kind of, you know, figure out what's going on, also protecting him. Uh, at the barracks, Paul makes his first appeal. He explains why he's being beaten, and it, it's, it's because of his hope in Jesus. And, and the crowd's listening until he gets to the point where that the gospel also includes the Gentiles, and then that kind of shuts down the conversation, and they start rioting again, and they bring Paul into the barracks for the night. Now, the tribune. The, this military officer, his job is to make sure things like this don't happen in Jerusalem, that the, that the city remains under order and in control. Uh, and so he wants to get to the bottom of what in the world is going on. You know, why does everybody hate this guy? And he decides to find out by beating it out of Paul. That was his first plan. We're just going to beat him in, in, until he tells us what's going on. Then he figures out Rome's, or Paul's a Roman citizen. That's illegal. So the next morning... He arranges a meeting for Paul to face his accusers. We're going to get to the bottom of this crisis. What's going on here? And that brings us to the story before us. So look again uh, at chapter 22, the very last verse of it, verse 30. The tribune calls this meeting for Paul to face his accusers, which begins by revealing the real agenda behind the leader's opposition. 
chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he's being accused by the Jews, the tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul has been accused of being unfaithful to Israel, unfaithful to her law, unfaithful to the temple. His opening remarks declare that is not the case. He has lived his life with good conscience before God. He doesn't depend on works of the law for his acceptance before God, but that doesn't mean he goes around trashing God's law. Or, or forsaking the traditions of his people, or, or telling people to disobey God in Scripture. He's actually innocent of the charges against him. He didn't bring a Gentile into the temple. He hasn't reviled the temple or called Jews to, to dishonor the law, and he makes that clear in his opening statement. But what happens next reveals what's really going on in this story, that this isn't really about honoring the law, but opposing Jesus. Look at what those who claim to defend the law do and how the one accused of breaking the law responds. Verse 2, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? The ones who are defending the law break the law in their opposition to the gospel. Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Ordering somebody to be punished before they've even had their trial is not doing justice in the court. They're breaking their own law. And Paul points this out, snapping back by basically accusing them of, of acting like the false prophets in Ezekiel 13. These whitewashed walls who look good on the outside, but it's just this veneer covering their sin and rebellion against God. In other words... He announces very clearly and unmistakably that you're acting like hypocrites. They claim to be defending God's law, but their real agenda is revealed by the ease with which they break that law to accomplish their goal, to stop Jesus, to stop the gospel. It's, it's not unlike some of the thinly veiled uh, agendas that we can see today. You know, for those who claim to care about women's health or women's rights, but are perfectly acceptable for thousands of women to be killed every day through abortion. Like, if, if, you really, if this is really about women's health, shouldn't you care about all women and not just those, you know, who are alive? Shouldn't you care about the systemic annihilation of an entire gender in certain countries right now through sex-selective abortion. Like, that's not really what this is about. It's not women's health. It's about abortion politics. And the inconsistency reveals the real agenda. Uh, similarly, you see the same hypocrisy. We saw the same hypocrisy by some religious conservatives in our recent election cycles. You know, some of the very same people 
who vehemently demanded the impeachment of Bill Clinton in the 90s on the basis that he had an affair and that he was lying, dismissed those very same actions when it was their candidate on the line. That's hypocrisy. That's inconsistency. If character matters, if morality matters, it matters for everyone, regardless of their policy or their party. And, and so that when we claim to care about something, but we're so willingly to get rid of the something we're defending, we reveal that there's some other agenda driving us. That's what's happening in this courtroom. Paul's accusers show their hypocrisy by throwing away the very thing they're accusing Paul of breaking. They show that this trial is a sham. It is, a, it, it is just one big excuse to try and stop the gospel of Jesus. That's the real agenda before them. So meanwhile, the one who is accused of breaking the law goes out of the way to obey it. So look at what happens next in verse 4. Those who stood by Paul, uh, those who stood by said to Paul, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, there's a little debate here on whether Paul is being snarky or straightforward. Like, does he really not know this is the priest? I mean, he was, he was wearing, probably wearing priestly garb, right? Uh, is he saying something kind of like, you know, what an exasperated parent might say to their teenager? You know, when you start acting like an adult, I'll treat you like an adult. Is it, you know, I didn't know you were the high priest because you're not acting like the high priest. Is he, is he like, you know, scoring a point here? Or did he honestly not know that that was the high priest? Um, the way that he seems to own his mistake and then anchor uh, and then cite the law as the proper standard makes me think he's probably being straightforward. Uh, in a situation where, where Paul is distinguishing his own law-keeping from the law-breaking of his accusers, I'm not sure he would be so cavalier as to break the law to score a point on his opponent. I could be wrong. Paul can be sharp. Uh, either way, when he's corrected, he quickly owns his mistake on the basis of the law. He cites Exodus 22, 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. So the one who's accused of breaking the law goes out of his way to keep it, while those who claim to defend the law are willingly breaking it to silence this guy. Again, this, this trial is not about honoring the law. It is about opposing Jesus. And there are times where we may find ourselves in similar positions today with regard to our witness to Christ, facing criticism and accusations that aren't really about the thing that we've just been accused of. Uh, it makes me think of Paul Church's experience a few years ago. Paul's a doctor, a, an accomplished urologist. He's a member at Trinitarian Church in Wayland. Uh, but in 2016, four hospitals in the Boston area cut ties with him not because, of, not because he was a bad doctor, not because of any complaints about the medical care he provided, but simply because he was unwilling to get on board with the LGBT agenda that the hospital wanted him to promote. That, that when he looked at the medical evidence as a urologist and the dangers that that can pose to people, 
His unwillingness to throw that aside cost him his work there. It wasn't about medicine. It was about something else, and a political agenda with an inherent opposition to Christ. And so, what do we do when we get caught in the crossfires like that? When we find ourselves trapped? You know, when we've, not because we've done something wrong, but because the world wants to stop the message of Christ. Uh, which isn't to say that Christians never do anything wrong or anything worth criticizing. Uh, we make plenty of mistakes. But when the accusations aren't really about the accusations, but about opposition to Jesus, what do we do? What does the apostle do? How does Paul respond in this situation? Let's look at verses 6 through 11 and the answer that he gives. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus sends his apostles out two by two to bear witness uh, to his coming kingdom among the Jews, to rec- they, and he recognizes you guys are going to be dragged in front of, of courts and in front of kings and made to, to give testimony. Jesus warns his apostles in Matthew 10, 16. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. That is the posture that Paul takes in the answer he gives in this story. He's already affirmed his innocence. I've, I've lived with a clean conscience. And in being innocent of the charge is necessary uh, if you're going to have a faithful witness. Um, if he had been breaking the law, the religious leaders would have been fully justified to shut him up and throw him away. Um, but Paul had lived in such a way that the charges couldn't stick. They just weren't, couldn't stick. And, and that's necessary for us as well. I remember a high school student that I mentored years ago who would complain to me of how he was persecuted for his faith in school. His teachers were just against him. And after a little bit of digging, I realized he was being persecuted because he didn't turn in his homework, not because of his witness. You know, you can't complain about getting in trouble if you're actually guilty of the thing for which you got in trouble. So being innocent of the charges is kind of an essential ingredient in having a faithful witness. We need to be innocent as doves, walking in obedience and quick to own it when we fall short. It's not that we'll be perfect, but that we own it when we don't live up to our own standards, when we do, uh, are, do act like hypocrites or, or make mistakes, just as Paul was quick to own it in his trial. I didn't realize I broke the law. This is the law that I just broke, and he owns it. But because the religious leader's agenda was clear, that they're not defending the law, they're trying to stop the gospel's advance, Paul ultimately refuses to play their game. He's not just innocent. He's also wise. He knows that they're not trying to get the accusation to stick. They're trying to shut him up and get rid of him and his message. And so he takes a strategy that's actually kind of reminds us of the way Jesus often dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they would try and trap him in his words so that they could condemn him and get rid of him, but it wasn't his time, and, and so he just wouldn't play their games. That's, that's what happens here. This is not Paul's time. He needs to get the gospel to Rome, 
And so he's just not going to play the game. So look at what he, how he answers in verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out in the, in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, on the one hand, Paul is making a true and powerful statement. He is on trial because of his hope in the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection to come. That is our hope as followers of Christ. When you think about it, what if Paul doesn't? Uh, what if Paul doesn't get out of this trial? What if he dies as a result of this courtroom right now? Does that mean that God loses? Does that mean that the gospel fails? I mean, James died for his witness. Stephen died for his witness. Being delivered from suffering and trial is not our ultimate hope as followers of Christ. Our ultimate hope is that Jesus has defeated sin and death. He's conquered it through his cross and resurrection so that through faith in him, we can be forgiven of our sins which he paid for on the cross, and raised to new life with him spiritually now as we're united with Christ by faith and physically in the resurrection to come when he returns and we look forward to the new heavens and new earth. That is our hope, that Jesus wins, that life wins, and that there is nothing that can stop the plan of God for the good of his people and the glory of his name. So, so what, the, what the Jews looked forward to for the end of time, Jesus took and broke into the present with it in the resurrection. That is the church's hope. Paul says true and powerful words in his testimony. But he also makes a very calculated statement because he knows that in affirming the resurrection among this council, he's going to create no little chaos and Lord willing, evade the trial and keep on track to get to Rome. Notice how Luke describes not just what Paul says, but why he says it. When he perceived that one part were Pharisees and one part were Sadducees, like he understood the effect his words were going to have. This was kind of like throwing a smoke grenade in the middle of the courtroom. Uh, and that, that's exactly the effect that it had. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were divided over some pretty significant things, like the resurrection. Uh, they, were, they were both ruling classes among the Jews. These were the religious elite, but they did not see eye to eye on everything. Uh, one group was conservative, the other group was liberal. The Pharisees had a high view of Scripture. They affirmed the holiness of God, the, the, spiritual, the supernatural power and promises of God. The Sadducees had a lower view of Scripture, uh, they denied spiritual realities like angels or in the spirit and, and resurrection. Both of them, conservative and liberal, missed the gospel. Both of them ultimately missed the gospel. But, but when Paul associates himself with the Pharisees and belief in the resurrection, these two factions just exploded each other. Uh, and, and in fact, Paul ends up becoming at risk such that the Roman tribune has to then get him out of the room and the gospel's advance is able to continue. Paul was innocent as a dove, 
and wise as a serpent. And again, we need that same wisdom. We need that same wisdom, not just innocence, but wisdom to know how to answer our accusers, when to open our mouths, when to keep them shut. Wisdom to discern, is this conversation an opportunity to embrace or a trap to avoid? Because you're going to have conversations that fall into both of those categories. And God is the one who gives us that wisdom. It's a lot of pressure to think, boy, I have to be as clever as Paul in bearing witness to Christ. That's a lot of pressure. But it's not about how clever we are. It's about depending on God to guide us and to give us the words. And he actually promises to do that. Again, back in Matthew 10, he says, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. When you find yourself in what feels like a trap, pray for wisdom and trust God to give you the right words. We must always be truthful. We must always be truthful, and we must be bold in our witness for Christ and be willing to be falsely accused. At the end of the day, what what do we lose? Our reputation. We haven't lost anything of eternal significance. So so we need to be willing to take up our cross and and follow Jesus. Where where was Jesus headed when he took up his cross? It wasn't to wag it in the faces of people that he just slammed in an epic takedown. It was to die, to lose everything. We must be willing to follow that pattern. But in in a world that's eager to trap us in our words in order to silence the message of Christ... There's also times when outflanking is a lot wiser than direct engagement. For instance, uh, nowadays, one of the first questions you're likely to be asked when you bring up Jesus is whether or not you think homosexual practice is a sin. You just almost can't talk about the gospel without somebody wanting to know where do you stand on that issue. It's the watershed issue, the cultural temperature that, that people take today. And we shouldn't be embarrassed about that question. We shouldn't be jerks about it. We shouldn't be embarrassed to, uh, to explain the beauty of God's design between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage and the danger of ignoring that design. We shouldn't be ashamed of what Scripture teaches on those things, nor do we need to be jerks about it. But sometimes when people ask me that question, it's not because they really want to know what I think about that, or are interested in a conversation. They're looking for an easy way to label me as a bigot and then dismiss everything else I might have to say. It's a trap. And, and so I don't always answer that question directly. Sometimes I try to graciously redirect. If my sense is that this is just kind of a trap, I'll try to graciously redirect, um, not to avoid it, but to put it in its proper context. You know, something like that, that's an important question, And that has a lot of implications for life, but to make sense of what Scripture says about that, it helps to know some of the bigger picture of the message of the Bible. Things like who God is, who we are, 
who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, how God wants us to respond, when we can see that, that helps us make better sense of what Scripture says about this question. Because, ultimately, basically, what I want to do is I want to set the controversial subject, regardless of what it is, I want to set the controversial subject in the context of the gospel. Because, ultimately, it's the gospel that helps make sense of that controversial subject, and because you're not saved by agreeing with what the Bible says about human sexuality or marriage. You're not saved by agreeing with what the Bible says about life or abortion politics. You're saved by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. That's the main thing. And we can sort some of these other things out as we grow in our walk with Christ. So gospel witness requires both integrity and wisdom in the face of accusation and opposition. Paul demonstrates for that for us in this story. But there's one more essential ingredient, the most essential ingredient, and the most encouraging, I think, and that's the presence of Jesus. And that's what we see in the final verse, in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And note here, when when Luke uses the word Lord, the Lord, he's usually talking about the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in in the book of Acts. And, And we know that's what he's doing here because Jesus is saying, just as you testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will also do so in Rome. Jesus appears to Paul in prison to strengthen him with words of encouragement. And that is the most essential ingredient, the presence of Christ through the Spirit. That brings us all the way back to the beginning of the book of Acts, right? Where where Jesus gave his charge, but then said, don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit comes upon you to strengthen you. You can't do this on your own. But with the presence of Christ who appears to Paul in prison and who is with every believer right now by the Holy Spirit, we are strengthened for the task. Take courage. Jesus is with you. And that instruction itself, of all the things Jesus could say to Paul in that moment, take courage, that itself is really encouraging. Uh, Because when you're put on the spot, when you feel vulnerable, when you Uh, when you're scared, when you don't know what to say, Jesus doesn't say to us, be clever, figure it out, make me proud. He says, take courage. I'm with you. Take courage in me. Jesus is with us. The risen Christ is reigning from heaven right now. That's what makes the difference in our witness. Just as Paul testified in Jerusalem, he will testify in Rome. God's plan is unstoppable. And, and Paul's going to need that encouragement because the road does not get easier after this part of the story. We're going to conclude our series in Acts next week looking at the last chapter. But, but between now and then, Paul has a plot of 40 people trying to execute him right out of the shoot. this next scene. At, at some point, he survives a shipwreck 
where, you know, there's just, it's going to get worse. He needs the encouragement of Christ to take courage, to know that he's with him so that he can be faithful to his witness in Rome. Because Christ is Lord over all. His blood is enough to cleanse us of all our sin, and his resurrection is enough to give us new life and strength to bear witness to him, to secure our victory in Christ, regardless of what happens to us in this world. The church has a real and lasting hope in Christ. So may we take courage in his presence whatever the opposition, and persevere in both a wise and a faithful witness to Christ for the glory of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess our utter need of you. Lord, when we think about the mission you've given us to, to be salt and light in this world, both individually as a church, it, it's pretty overwhelming. We recognize the, the real likelihood of facing rejection or mockery or opposition. God, we thank you for the freedoms we enjoy in our context that, that none of us are worried about being killed right now because of our witness, whereas our brothers and sisters around the globe, that's a very real possibility for some of them, and we pray for your persevering presence with them. But Lord, we need courage too. We need courage, and, and we thank you that in Christ, we have courage through your presence. So help us to be innocent. Help us to walk faithfully, to own our mistakes, to, to not give in to the pressure to put on a show and look good, but simply to confess who we are and that our only hope is Christ. And help us to be wise, to know how are we going to love our neighbors well. What does that look like in this moment? We need your spirit, and I thank you that your spirit is with us. So may your name be proclaimed in and through this body of believers. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.